I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. We have uh, over uh, the past, well, a couple of years, I suppose, been uh, just uh, looking at the life of Jesus in the book of Matthew. We took the summer off, and now we're going to come back. And all throughout the book of Matthew, we have been really confronted by Jesus saying things and doing things that we don't expect and saying things and doing things that we aren't always that comfortable with. The life that Jesus invites us into is not the life that we see advertised on TV or celebrated uh, throughout our world. And the reality is that Jesus keeps us off balance and makes us uncomfortable and Sooner or later, that's going to be one of the things that we really do appreciate about him. And so today, as we resume our look at the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to bump into another teaching of Jesus that makes us uncomfortable. And in fact, this morning in our text, the the question that Jesus answered is a question about divorce. And we would love for Jesus to make us feel good as he answers this question or to make all of our uh, problems go away, to assure us that everything's good and we've done nothing wrong and everything's fine, just keep doing what you're doing. Yet, as we hear Jesus talk, he's really not even talking about that. And it might be helpful to think briefly about why we expect those things and what it is about our culture and the messages that we receive from our culture that um, come in conflict with the teachings of Jesus. Because really the, the conflict is not at the level of what does Jesus say about marriage and divorce, what does our culture say about marriage and divorce, but rather it's at the level about what makes for a good life. And really we are given different messages from the world around us than we are from Jesus about what makes the good life. Carl Truman in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, notices, he says, while sex may be presented today as little more than a recreational activity, Sexuality is presented as that which lies at the very heart of what it means to be an authentic person. So really, we're talking this morning, Jesus is talking about what it means to be an authentic person. If you watch any movie, and in fact, um, Hallmark is made like a industry of this, haven't they? Sex stands in as a proxy for true love and intimacy. What matters in life is ultimately finding someone to love. And when you do, that will truly fulfill you and make you happy. And so the messages that are sent to us expect that we will 
live out and express the deepest longings of our heart in a way that makes us feel happy and fulfilled. This has led us to live now in a culture where sexuality is at the same time both taboo and central. One cannot speak publicly about this uh, in a way that challenges those assumptions about how important love and marriage are without being deemed hateful. And it's not really about love and marriage and sex. It's about what it means to be an authentic and fulfilled person. And if it really is about being an authentic and fulfilled person, you can imagine how this distorts our perspective on marriage. So that when Jesus gets a question about divorce, we all of a sudden get defensive and we want to make sure that um, he tells us something we want to hear. Because we don't want him to challenge our modern assumptions that those are the most important things. Yet he's busy answering questions from somebody else and he does it in a way that both helps them and helps us. And so I want to invite you to read with me Matthew chapter 19. I'll begin in verse 1. Matthew 19, beginning in verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, He went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive it, receive it. And so one of the things we'll see here is that God's intent in creation is the most certain way to understand both marriage and divorce. God's intent from creation is that marriage be a permanent relationship, not dissolved 
by a certificate of divorce. And so, it's probably worth pausing for a moment on the first couple verses here in chapter 19, which really aren't connected to the teaching that Jesus is doing. But they're introductory, or they get us back up to speed, which I think we probably all need since we haven't really looked at the book of Matthew for a while. But it says, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, He went from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed Him and He healed them there. And so, Jesus had just finished these sayings. What sayings? The sayings in chapter 18 about forgiveness. I don't think there's any accident that His teaching about forgiveness and His teaching about marriage go hand in hand. But it really wasn't just the teachings about forgiveness in verse or chapter 18, but really the entire book is pointing us in one direction that we must pick up here in chapter 19. So the book of Matthew started out presenting Jesus as king. He was heralded by angels. We have his royal genealogy in chapter 1. Uh, we have uh, a threatened King Herod who tries to kill all the children. And Jesus is then exiled. He returns and is baptized and tested. And then the first thing that we see is that Jesus goes up on a mountain to teach. And his message is, in, in essence, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he teaches on this mountain what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And there Jesus presents this manifesto about what true human living is all about. He calls His followers to the kind of life that will lead to their flourishing. And will ultimately point to the final expression of His kingdom. Well, the sermon is over and then Jesus goes around uh, teaching and healing people and doing good works and bring, He brings heaven and earth together to point us to a direction and give us a vision for life in a kingdom with no sickness and no tears. He does that and then Matthew picks it up again and Jesus engages in another round of teaching, this time largely in parables or stories. And most of those parables and stories start out like this. They say, the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. It's, it's like a, a, someone who goes on a long journey. It's like a farmer who plants a field. It's like a sower who goes out to sow. And Jesus tries to expand our vision about what it is like to be in his kingdom. And he gives us a picture of another time and another place when the kingdom will be present in its fullness. So he does that and then his disciples figure out that Jesus is who he said he is. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And as soon as that comes out of their mouth, Jesus begins to say, we're going to Jerusalem. 
We're going to Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem I'll be arrested and tried and crucified, and I'll rise on the third day. And 100% they don't get that. 100% it just goes over their head. And that then more or less brings us to uh, chapter 19, where these first verses actually tell us the, about the movement of Jesus toward Jerusalem. It says that he leaves Galilee and he goes south and east of the Jordan on his way to um, Jerusalem. In fact, he comes so close to Jerusalem, or close enough to Jerusalem, that the religious leaders who are um, centered there around the temple somehow see on their radar screen that Jesus is close by. And as he flashes on their radar screen, they go out and talk to him. And that's where we are in chapter 19. And so in verse 3 then, it tells us that these Pharisees or these religious leaders from Jerusalem came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now it's important that you just stop and analyze the question for just a minute. I think it's easy for us to like, you know, tense up and say, Jesus is going to talk about something that makes us nervous. Before we do that, we should just analyze the question. It says the Pharisees came up to Jesus to test him. They didn't come up with a sincere question. They came up with a, test, a question that would test him. They came up with a question to trick him in hopes that he would fail. Uh, it, not merely they were hoping that he'd give them an answer that they didn't like, and therefore they could reject him, but they wanted to embroil him in a larger controversy. This was their MO. They've been trying all along to test him, and one of the great things about the week that Jesus is uh, crucified is all of the attempts that they make to trick him during that time. But that's what they're doing here. And, and really, there were two schools of thought led by two prominent rabbis. One said that you could divorce only on the grounds of sexual immorality. And the other approved of divorce uh, on the most trivial of grounds. Uh, either way, Jesus is going to be in trouble. And so in addition... They were hoping that Jesus would articulate one of these positions, either only for sexual immorality or anything, uh, any small reason, and the other side would be upset with him. That's what they were hoping for. In addition, though, there was a, there was a chance that the answer Jesus gave would make its way back to King Herod. King Herod was always... Uh, watching and listening to the Jews to see what was going on. It, that was his job. And when John the Baptist disagreed with Herod on the topic of divorce, uh, he delivered John the Baptist's head on a platter. And so I think there was this hope that Jesus would get crosswise not only with one school or the other, but with Herod himself, and that would be the end of Jesus. That would be very convenient for them. 
And so you'll notice then that not just the motive of their question to test him or trick him, but you'll notice the content of the question. Is it um, okay to divorce, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? For any cause. Uh, we, we laughed about this uh, in our um, meeting, uh, sermon meeting this week. Uh, Pastor Adolfo was uh, going to talk about this with Iglesia uh, Nueva Vida. And he was going to tell them that uh, the one school said it was okay if, you, if she burns your quesadilla. That was his take on him. Burns the quesadilla, that's reason enough. But uh, that's what they're asking. Really, if she burns the quesadilla, can I divorce my wife? And um, so what's she just going to do? She's going to fall for this? She's going to like bite on the question? What is Jesus going to do? And I want you to notice the method of Jesus' answer as well as the content of his answer, okay? So what Jesus does and what Jesus says. Because the first thing that you'll notice is that Jesus does not answer the question about divorce. Is it lawful to divorce for any cause? And Jesus says neither yes nor no. He doesn't even talk about divorce. Because instead, he realizes that you can't talk about divorce if you don't first talk about marriage. It is ultimately the nature of marriage that matters. What God's intent for marriage is, and it matters then that the definition of marriage and what marriage is about um, really sets the parameters then for any conversation about divorce. And so they, in essence, ask Jesus the wrong question, hoping he'll fall for it, and instead he answers what would be the right question in an effort to set the record straight. And so, look what he says. Look what he says. He says, first of all, that God created, that God is the creator. He establishes one thing for certain, that God is the creator both of human beings and of the institution of marriage. God establishes, among other things, when he does that, his authority over marriage so that those who are participants in the marriage do so under the authority of God. God is the maker and consequently the authority when it comes to marriage. That's the first thing I think he does by going back to creation. And he says that marriage is made for a purpose. And then he begins to unfold the purpose. And the next thing he tells us is that God made them in the beginning male and female. Male and female. Now this doesn't exactly answer the question of marriage. This, because he's quoting from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. And that's really a statement of creation in, in chapter 1, verse 26. It says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the seas, the birds of the air, and the beasts of the, and everything that creeps over the earth. And then he goes on to talk about making them male and female. 
as part of his image. And so as Jesus, or as God says this in the beginning, that he is going, they're going to leave their father and mother and hold fast to that because God created them in his image, that's, that's what he is um, wanting to establish first. That marriage is an expression somehow of the image of God. That in order to reflect God, it took more than one person. More than um, one different kind of person. He made male and female, and he put them together in marriage and said, let them be in our image. And so there is this unity in um, diversity, this unity of multiple persons in marriage that reflects the image of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with multiple persons in unity with one another in what we theologically call the Trinity. And so God puts male and female together and as he does that, uh, in marriage, they represent God. They image, they become the image of God. They were to rule over the world and have dominion. They were to exercise in God's stead all that God would have done were he there. They are his image in his garden temple. And so the very first statement about making the male and female, Jesus establishes that marriage is between a male and a female. It is a heterosexual relationship as evidenced by creation. Then Jesus jumps a chapter to chapter 2 in Genesis where he quotes the final pre-fall, pre-sin words in Genesis. This is the final... Uh, words of the Bible before sin enters. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, it says, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then at the end of chapter 2, chapter 3, introduces us to sin. Now it's interesting because a man shall leave his father and mother. There was no father and there was no mother when uh, God said this to Adam. This had a, a view to the future, a view to the purpose of marriage. And Jesus was pointing to the future of marriage to make a point that those former relationships are past and now there will be a new one established. The two shall become one flesh. That was an important enough uh, statement that Jesus repeated it in his answer. Uh, notice that he's quoting the Old Testament, the two shall become one flesh, and then he said, he repeats it and says, the two shall become one. And so that appears to me, as I read it and see it repeated, that that's the central idea Jesus is driving at. That the question is really not about divorce, the question is about what is happening when someone gets married. What is happening in marriage? And his answer to that is the two become one. 
And so what does it mean then that the two will become one flesh? I think the context gives us about all that we have about what that means. And if you uh, look at it, you'll notice the first thing is that it is a one flesh relationship when there is a deliberate establishment of a new relationship. He says you'll leave the father and mother and be joined to a wife. There is this deliberate leaving and joining that uh, really we uh, now would call a marriage covenant where the uh, bride or a husband leaves father and mother and they're joined together. And so there is this, first of all, deliberate relationship. The second thing that I think makes for the one flesh relationship has to do with uh, sex. Part of the one flesh relationship is sexual. This is the argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 when it's suggested that if someone's involved with a prostitute, it's a problem because you become one flesh with them. Which then I think affects the way that Jesus then um, creates an exception for sexual immorality later in the text. So there is this deliberate relationship, there is some kind of sexual union, and then there is this mysterious joining together that God does in this relationship. Because Jesus right after that says, what God has joined together, let no one separate. There is a work of God here somehow. God is doing something that we can't see, maybe not even understand. But that is also part of this one flesh relationship. And so it is really those three things that make up this one flesh relationship that Jesus says is central to the nature of marriage. And so God is acting on that marriage and wants it to be preserved. That's, that's really how far Jesus goes until he says, what God has joined together, let no one separate. That's as close as Jesus comes to talking about divorce, is that what God has put together, let no one separate. So apparently the separation of, uh, that happens in divorce is the separation of this one flesh relationship that God has designed. And Jesus answered the question without really even talking about the question. Well, that brings us then to verse 7. And they, these religious leaders realize they haven't tricked Jesus. They finally realize, oh, he didn't fall for question number one. He didn't even bite on it. What are we going to do? We better ask him another question. So verse 7, they ask him another question. It says, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Why did, God, why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? So this is question number two. He didn't qualify for question number one. What about question number two? Well, if they couldn't get Jesus to get in the middle of a fight between these two schools and disagree with half of the religious teachers, and he couldn't get him in trouble with Herod, maybe they could get Jesus in trouble with Moses. Because if, they, if Jesus crosses Moses, then Jesus crosses the entire Old Testament and all of Judaism, and that would be the end of Jesus. And so they say, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate 
of divorce and send her away. Well, the first one, first one they sort of tipped their hand, didn't they? For any cause. Can you divorce for any cause? Almost made it too easy. This one, similarly, they said, why did Moses command a certificate of divorce? Well, Jesus is quick to point out that this is too obvious also. That Moses didn't command a certificate of divorce. Moses allowed for divorce or permitted a certificate of divorce. In fact, the certificate of divorce is um, a, a permission out of grace for the woman. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, is really the place that it talks about this um, certificate of divorce. And it, it says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And it goes on then to describe what happens. But that's the only certificate of divorce, or at least the first certificate of divorce that it talks about. And it's not commanded, it's permitted. And it's permitted for the sake of the woman so that she can remarry and someone else then can provide for her because she didn't have options to go get a job or get an education. And she would be forced to beg or forced into prostitution as a result of this divorce. And so even the permission of divorce was an act of grace. But Jesus is very quick then, too, to point out that that's not how it was from the beginning. Jesus wants to make sure that this, this permission is not, that's not how God intended it. And so he goes back, and he, he goes back to the intention, he goes back to creation. That's where the roots of this institution lie. Now, I think that when Jesus does that, he, shall I say, is being idealistic. Okay? I mean, Jesus is never I, idealistic at the, um, at the cost of being realistic, but he is idealistic in that he goes back to creation and pulls from creation the meaning of marriage as God intended it to be this one flesh, intimate relationship where it is not good for a man to be alone any longer. And he takes that one flesh relationship and he brings it into the present time and he says this is the meaning of marriage. And this meaning of marriage then uh, as oneness and love and faithfulness and commitment and intimacy points us to one day when God will restore all things. Very few marriages have all of the wonder and the beauty and the love and uh, communication and everything that God intended in the beginning. But Jesus imports that and wants us to recognize we're aiming at the standard here. And so Jesus... draws from the past and points us to the future and then says, this is for the hardness of your hearts. If there were no hard hearts, there would be no divorce. 
There is a hardness that is underneath the need for divorce. And so then Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And he highlights uh, at least one of the evidences of this hardness of heart. And because it damages this one flesh relationship, he permits divorce in the instance of sexual immorality. And he warns us that the, um, an addition of a second marriage or a second wife, it would prompt adultery as well. And it's a little unclear, I will just say, whether it's the divorce, it's probably not the divorce, but probably the remarriage then that um, results in adultery. And when it results in adultery, then the, the hardness or the difficulty of the saying becomes clear. It's then that everyone, us, the Pharisees, and the disciples struggle with the words of Jesus. Because even the disciples understood that he was saying a hard thing. Now, I just want to stop here because I know anyone who has uh, experienced divorce themselves or with a close loved one uh, experiences some level of pain and regret. This is... This is just a hard fact of life that we all struggle with. And the words of Jesus here are not meant to heap more guilt and more shame on us, but rather point us back to the ideal of creation so that we can hold that up as God's intention and aim for that in our marriage and long for what that was promised to fulfill in the final day. Because I think that what one of the things that happens here, even as we struggle with the words of Jesus, is that we struggle with the fact that neither marriage nor sex fulfills the promises that they make. And one day, our hope is that one day, the pain from those disappointments will be gone and all of our joy will be full when the kingdom of heaven is here in its fullness. And so at this hard saying of Jesus, the disciples recognize it that way. They recognize that it's not an easy thing to deal with. And look at verse 10. This is what they say. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. It's better not to marry. And Jesus doesn't argue with them. He says, yes, but not everyone can receive this, only those to whom it's given. But, yeah, you're probably right. Given the struggle and the pain, given the mirror that marriage holds up to our brokenness, it might be better not to marry. And the, the word that Jesus has and the word that he uses for this is the word eunuch, which um, is one we don't use very much, but he intends to talk about it as 
really somebody who doesn't marry. And so he said there are some people who don't marry by virtue of birth. Maybe they would like to marry, but they don't or can't because of their situation in life and how they're born. And he says that that is um, that a fact of life, and it's probably better for them. Then he says there are some who are single or eunuchs who are that way because of some tragedy, because they have been made eunuchs by other people. They've been conquered and forced into slavery and uh, who knows what other uh, awful thing. And then he said there's a third group that is single by choice or that have made the decision for the sake of the kingdom of heaven not to marry. And I don't think he's thinking of eunuchs in the terms like there's some physical... um, that they're somehow um, harming themselves at just as a choice not to marry. And I think that's the way he's using that term. And he's, he's using it to say, yeah, might be better not to marry because of this permanent nature of marriage that Jesus has highlighted here. Because it's marriage then that points us to the final uh, hope that we have. And so if I go back to where I started, if sex and marriage are nothing more than a transaction with our bodies or a means of personal fulfillment, then we're going to be left with disappointment and false hope. To use a word that we've talked about before, we're trusting in an idol that cannot deliver what it promises. But rather when we end up thinking about marriage and subsequently then divorce, we recognize that the longing of the human heart to be loved and to belong and to be safe is ultimately not going to happen because of a physical union or because even of a marital union. Those might be a shadow that points to something better, but we're made for something better. And so we don't settle for being consumed with a marriage or with physical pleasure. But rather, it's the death and resurrection of Jesus that point us to the true joy and the true fulfillment and the true love that our hearts actually long for. In fact, the entire story of Jesus' love for you and for his people can be told through the lens of marriage. Because God loved people and he put them together in a garden, made them male and female to image him, and God's purpose was good, and it was meant to solve the problem of loneliness. And if that was the end of the story, that'd be great, but it wasn't, was it? Because The next chapter in the story is that sin enters and the very first thing it ruins is the family. It ruins the marriage. And from then on, it holds up a mirror to a husband and a wife about how selfish and needy and broken they are. And then it points us to another part of the story. 
to say, yes, we are needy and selfish and broken, and we need something. We need to be rescued from that brokenness. And the Bible holds out, then Jesus says the answer to our brokenness, and, he does, and it does it in terms of marriage. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. There is this self-sacrificing, this self-denying love that Christ had for the church that says even in the best of days, husbands can't arrive at the beauty of the love that Christ has for the church. And so it points us then beyond a, a human marriage to the final marriage where uh, in, in Revelation 19, there will be a marriage supper of the Lamb and God throws this lavish party when all of those who are beloved by God will be together. And all of the longing of their hearts to belong and to be um, loved and to have somebody be faithful to them will be fulfilled in the new creation. And so this interruption that these religious leaders give to Jesus by asking him about divorce isn't incidental to the rest of his teaching. It is really right in line with the teaching on the kingdom of heaven pointing us to the day when all of it will be fulfilled. Because Jesus came to love his bride. He came to love you and me. And Jesus envisioned this the wedding feast. I think even in the last, um, even in the last meal that he had with his disciples, the last meal he had with his disciples, he told them, he said, "You know, I'm not. We're not going to raise a glass again together until one day in the kingdom of heaven." And I think Jesus himself was looking forward to that day when all that he came to do would be established. And all of his creation would come together in wholeness, in healing. And human beings would live as they were intended in an intimate, loving, faithful relationship with God. 